Good morning. My name is Adam and it's uh, really great to have you with us this morning as we open up God's Word together. And I wonder if you know what the following people have in common. What do the following people have in common? Leonardo da Vinci, Barack Obama, Prince William, Oprah Winfrey, Sir Paul McCartney and my mum. Yeah, you got it. They're all left-handed. <laughs> Are there any other lefties among us this morning? Yeah, there's a few. There's a few. You're in pretty good company. I left off uh, the list uh, a lot of other you know, influential people. Now, for the rest of us normal people... Uh, <laughs> I mean right-handers, sorry, sorry, slip of the tongue. What we may not realise is it's not actually that easy being a lefty. In fact, there are some disadvantages to being left-handed. So, for instance, when you're learning to write, you do what? You smudge the ink across the page. When you use most pairs of scissors, they feel a little bit awkward in your hands. Go and try this this week. I actually tried it in my study because I was like, what are you talking about? Scissors feel fine. But the way that they're kind of made, it feels awkward. When you shake hands with someone, what hand do they automatically extend the right hand. And if you ever became a royal, and Prince Mary from Tasmania has proved that, you know, it's possible, if you ever became a royal and you wanted to play the game of polo, you know, when you ride a horse and you hit the thing, ball with the mallet thing, too bad. If you're left-handed and you want to play polo, you're not allowed. No lefties are allowed to play the game of polo. You're just banned. That's it. So there's some disadvantages to being left-handed. But there are also some advantages. Left-handed people often learn to be ambidextrous. They're often forced to, to learn how to you know, work with the right hand because people only shake their right hand. Being left-handed has advantages in certain sports. Tennis, cricket, boxing. If you're left-handed, that's an advantage. Also, and now I want to build you left-handed people back up, lefties are more likely to be geniuses. <laughs> there are a higher number of left-handed Nobel Prize winners than right-handed. And if you're a lefty, you're more likely to be a writer, an artist, a musician, an architect, a mathematician, because being left-handed apparently helps with complex reasoning. So there's some advantages to being left-handed. Now, maybe you're running, well, why the heck does this matter? <laughs> what does left-handedness have to do with the book of Judges? Well, believe it or not, left-handedness plays an important role in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. It teaches us something important about how God works in the world. You see, we're in a sermon series at the moment, working our way through the Old Testament book of Judges called Life in Chaos. You see, Judges tells us about a time in the history of God's people when they were in chaos. They'd entered into the land that God promised to give them. But having entered the land, they then failed to obey God. They failed to drive out the nations that were already dwelling in that land. And these nations become a thorn in the side of the Israelites. 
The Israelites are corrupted and they're led astray by these nations and they actually begin to worship the false gods of these nations. In fact, it's really summed up um, at the beginning of Judges chapter 3, uh, towards the end of the passage that we looked at last week, where we read, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. These are the surrounding nations. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the Canaanite gods. And so the people of Israel are kind of like a sponge. They enter into this new land surrounded by other nations and they just absorb the corruption and the idolatry of the surrounding nations. And this leads them into a downward cycle away from God. In fact, do you remember the poop cycle from last week? If you weren't here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, get online and make sure you listen to uh, last week's sermon. Israel, get on this cycle that really perpetuates throughout the book of Judges and it begins with rebellion. The people of Israel turn away from God and worship idols, which leads to retribution. God allows his rebellious people to be defeated by the enemy, their enemies and the surrounding nations. Which leads to repentance. The people of Israel cry out to God for his help, which moves God to rescue them. God sends them a leader, a deliverer called a judge. And that's why the book is called the book of Judges. Now don't think a uh, courtroom and gavel type of judge. This is a, a military chief, a tribal leader who delivers the Israelites from their oppression. And the tragic story of Judges is that this cycle repeats itself again and again and again and again. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, rescue, over and over again. And today, we see this cycle played out in the story of Israel's first major judge, their first major leader, Ehud, the left-handed assassin. Now, if you're thinking that sounds like a pretty cool story, It is. (laughs) And we're going to be looking at this story today. You see, we come to chapter 3 and we come to a new section in the book, chapters 3 to 16. And in these chapters we're told numerous stories about what happened at this time in Israel's history. And we meet some of the judges that God used to deliver his people. And in chapter 3 we actually meet three of the judges that God used to deliver his people. We meet Othniel in verses 7 to 11, Ehud in verses 12 to 30, and Shagmar in verse 31. Now, Ehud is really the focus of the chapter, so we'll be focusing on him today. But I'd encourage you to do a bit of your own study on Othniel and Shagmar um, during the week. But we'll be focusing on Ehud, and we're going to be asking three important questions about this left-handed assassin. Number one, what happens? Number two, what does it tell us about us? And number three, what does it tell us about God? So let's look at the first one. What happens? Well, the story of Ehud begins in verse 12. And look at what we read there. It says in chapter 3, verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you're going to get sick of this phrase in the book of Judges because we see it again and again. But this is the first step in the cycle, rebellion. The people of Israel turn from God and worship false gods, which leads to the second step we see in verses 12 to 14. 
retribution. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's referring to Jericho. Verse 14, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So God uses this cruel king of Moab to defeat the Israelites and to enslave them. And they are enslaved to Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. This is retribution, which leads to the next step, repentance. Verse 15, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cry out to God for his help and God in his mercy responds. Look at what we read at the rest of verse 15. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So God raises up a deliverer to rescue the Israelites and he raises up this man named Ehud. Now Ehud is a surprising choice for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we're told that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now this is kind of like saying he's from Tasmania. It's a lovely state to live in when you retire, but, but it's not exactly a powerful, influential state. You see, the tribe of Benjamin was actually the weakest of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin had been mentioned only once so far in the book of Judges, and it was because of their failure to drive out the Jebusites. And so Ehud is a surprising choice. He's from the weakest tribe of Israel. But he's also a surprising choice because we're told that he was a left-handed man. Now, what's that about? Why does that matter? Well, if you do a study of the Bible, you'll see that all references to being right-handed are positive. God swears by his right hand, Isaiah 62. Pleasures lie at God's right hand, Psalm 16. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, we're told in Ephesians 1. The right hand is spoken of positively. It is a symbol of power and authority because it is the sword-bearing arm. So when verse 15 says that Ehud was a left-handed man, it's not exactly being positive. And in fact, it literally means the word there that Ehud was unable to use his right hand. In the opinion of many Old Testament scholars, they say that Ehud was probably disabled or paralysed in some way. They say that probably his right hand had either been crushed or it had been born withered. And so Ehud, really, in a society that was crueler to disabled people, even than ours, he would have been considered useless. No one would have looked up to him. No one would have considered him to be a leader or a deliverer. He's a surprising choice to deliver God's people, yet he is God's choice. And what we're going to see as the story continues is that Ehud was uniquely suited to deliver the Israelites from the cruel king, Eglon. Look what happens as the story continues. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, that's Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. So they send with Ehud food, probably some gold, to deliver this to King Eglon. But Ehud also packs a little bit of a surprise. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, somewhere between 30 to 45 centimetres. And he bound it on his right thigh 
under his clothes. Now he puts it on his right thigh so that it's easy to grab with his left hand. Perhaps that also means that he, it was undetected if he was patted down before he entered into the presence of the king. Look what happens. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now we're given a really interesting fact about this king Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Now again, this seems like an odd or an, an irrelevant detail, doesn't it? But it will become very relevant in just a moment. Now, I, I couldn't help but picture this as I kind of thought about um, King Eglon this week. Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars. And then I was thinking about it and I thought, and Luke lost his left hand to Darth Vader, didn't he? Maybe George Lucas is you know, getting some inspiration from the book of Judges here. But of course, what we're reading about in Judges did not happen in a galaxy far, far away. It's not science fiction or fantasy, it's history. And so what happens between Ehud and Eglon? Look at what we read. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. He sends all the others away so that it's just him and Eglon and all of Eglon's um, entourage. And he says to the, the king, he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And, and the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And so Ehud tells King Eglon that he has a secret message. And, I, and Eglon very stupidly sends out everybody from his presence except Ehud. And now we see why Ehud was uniquely suited for this mission. Eglon obviously didn't see Ehud as a threat. Remember, Ehud's right hand was withered or, or paralysed in some way. And Eglon just assumed that Ehud wouldn't be dangerous. But we all know what they say about making assumptions. And look what happened. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. That's King Eglon. Eglon stands up and moves closer to Ehud to receive the secret message. But in doing so, he positions his huge belly as a perfect target for Ehud's strike. And look what happened. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And here's where it gets gross. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And here's where it gets even grosser. And the dung came out. Yes, that means what you think it means. And yes, that's in the Bible. Some of you are thinking, man, I really should read the Bible a little bit more. <laughs> yes, you should. Teenage boys are like, whoa. <laughs> Ehud strikes down this cruel Moabite king. And having done what he came to do, he makes his escape. And look at what we read in verses 23 to 24. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So Ehud's entourage come back from their coffee break, and based on the smell that is emanating from the roof chamber, they just assume that Eglon is in the little boy's room. And so they stand there, and they wait for him to finish. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and it gets a little bit awkward. They waited till they were embarrassed. 
Now remember, they didn't have smartphones back then, so they're probably thinking, man, what is he doing on there? I mean, why is he taking so long? Come on, I'm not the only one that takes my phone onto the toilet, am I? Fine, judge me, yeah. They're wondering, why is he taking so long? Now, they're probably making jokes at first, and I was going to include a few jokes, but I thought, I'm not going to do that. Then it gets a little bit concerning. So they get their key, and they burst in. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. Now, I reckon they were probably arguing as well, saying, dude, you are opening the door. I'm not doing it. You, you can have that. They open the door, and look what happens. And there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. They burst into the room, and King Eglon is dead. And I'm not sure they would have been upset by more. The fact that their king was dead, or the clean-up that they had before them. But either way, by this time, Ehud was long gone. He'd made his escape and with the king of Moab dead, Ehud rallies the people of Israel together. He leads them to fight back against the Moabites. They defeat them and they're rescued from slavery to King Eglon and to the Moabites. That's what we read in verses 26 to 30, which I won't read out, but you can read at home today. Now, what a crazy story. And I'm sure you're wondering, well, why is that in the Bible? (laughs) Why does this matter? Well, let's answer this by looking at our next two questions. What does it tell us about us and what does it tell us about God? Firstly, what does it tell us about us? Now, Ehud was an unlikely choice, wasn't he? From the weakest tribe of Israel, he he was physically handicapped. Surely there were better options to rescue the Israelites than Ehud. Yet, he was the one whom God chose and he was the one whom God used. And this teaches us an important lesson, a lesson that we learn really all throughout the Bible. And simply this, that God advances his kingdom in the world, not through human strength, but through willing servants. God advances his kingdom in the world, not through human strength, but through willing servants. This is the same thing the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1, where he writes, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one may boast before him. The people that God loves to use in the world are not the rich and the popular and the powerful and the socially acceptable, not the gifted, not the eloquent. The people that God loves to use in the world are the flawed, the weak, the unlikely, the unqualified, the sinners. And if you don't believe me, consider some of the people that God used so powerfully in the Bible. Abraham gave his wife to another king out of fear. Moses had a speech problem and murdered an Egyptian. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson, who we'll meet in a few weeks, had a serious problem with lust and anger. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah struggled with depression. Jeremiah was just a young boy when God called him. Jonah ran away from God. Zacchaeus was filled with greed. Peter denied he ever even knew Jesus. The other disciples abandoned Jesus in his time of need. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, murdered Christians. It's not exactly the list a list of the best and the brightest, is it? Yet these are the type of people that God calls and that God delights to use. 
So, is anybody here today a sinner? I am. You're the type of person that God delights to use. And this doesn't justify the mess and the sin of our lives, but it doesn't stop God from using us either. And this means that when it comes to, to being used by God in this world, your availability is more important than your ability. Let me say that to you again. Your availability, being open to the possibility that God might want to work in and through you, your availability is more important than your ability. Let me ask you, have, have you opened yourself up to the possibility that God might want to use you in your workplace, in your school, in your university, at home, at your sports club? Or have you just said, well, no, no, God could never use me. I don't know enough. I don't really know what to say. I stumble over my words. I'm too much of a mess up. God couldn't use me. Listen to me. God doesn't need your ability. He's got more than enough ability. He needs your availability. Your openness to be used by Him. And if you open yourself up to Him, if you rely on Him, if you obey Him when He prompts you to step out, and he will use you for the glory of his name. That's what the story of Ehud tells us about us, that God can use even us for his purposes. But more importantly, what does it tell us about God? There's a a biblical scholar by the name of Dale Ralph Davis, and he says that most people miss the humour of this story. Now, I tried to make it a little bit humorous, and that was for a reason. Because when this story was told by the Israelites, when this story was read, it was told with giggles. It was told with chuckles. Now, it's not that the story is not true, but it's that this story is told to mock King Eglon. This king who opposed God, this king who oppressed God's people, he is defeated in such a way so that God's people, many years later, can look back and laugh. This is what he says, Dale Ralph Davis. He says, for a few minutes, you must reach down and pull off your 20th century nights and slip on some Israelite sandals. Try to hear this story as an Israelite would have heard it or told it. An Israelite, remember, who for 18 years had been oppressed and taxed to the bone under blubbery King Eglon then you won't be surprised, but rather will understand the pure enjoyment, the devastating humour, the biting satire, the sheer hilarity of this narrative. Now, the reason this is important, and the reason I'm telling you this, is because it reveals to us an important truth about God. And it's simply this, that God mocks those who oppose him. God laughs at those who think they can overcome him or stop his purposes. In this story, we are told things from God's perspective. Now, from our perspective, tyrants like King Eglon are terrifying. They fill us with dread and despair. Think of tyrants like Mugabe and and Kim Jong-un. We look at them and we think, we, we get a little bit anxious. But to God, they're laughable. Listen to what God says in Psalm 2. One of the most important psalms in the Bible. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us overcome God. We can defeat him, defy him. What does God do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, it's not that God is indifferent to the evil that people do or to the suffering that they inflict. Now, God laughs because he knows that their claim to be able to defy him is absurd. Now, let's be honest. There are lots of people today who defy God, who mock God and who oppress his people. And God looks down upon this defiance and this rebellion and he doesn't wring his hands. He's not nervous. He laughs. Think about it this way. During his trial, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor who represented the might of the Roman Empire, do you think God was nervous? Do you think he was, oh no, the Romans, I did not see that coming. They're pretty strong. Jesus, abort mission, get out of there. The Roman Empire looked strong. They looked powerful. It looked like they were destroying Jesus, but they were playing directly into God's hands. They looked powerful in that moment. And do you know what? Today, people go to Rome to look at what? Ruins. And the church of Jesus Christ is alive and thriving in every corner of the globe. It's foolish to oppose the living God. Charles Spurgeon put it very colourfully and forthrightly in one of his sermons. Listen to what he says. He, he says, He who would place himself in front of a fast-moving railway car, a train, will be crushed and would be no more foolish than you who are opposing the gospel. If the gospel is true, truth is mighty and it will prevail. Who are you to attempt to stand against it? Let everyone in the world know assuredly that the gospel will win its way, whatever they may do. Poor creatures, their efforts to oppose the gospel are not even worthy of our notice. And we need not fear that they can stop the truth. They are like a gnat who thinks he can quench the sun. Go, tiny insect, and do it if you can. You will only burn your wings and die. Likewise, there may be a fly who thinks it could drink the ocean dry. Drink the ocean if you can, O fly more likely you will sink in it and it will drink you. See, isn't it true that at this point in history and to our eyes, those who stand against God, who oppose God, who defy God, they look like they're in charge. But it's even more true that God is working his purposes in history, his plan in history, so that his purposes will be accomplished, his name will be glorified, and so that no one who stands against him will come to anything. So I just want to say to you, take heart. Though it looks like those who defy God are in charge, there is a day coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But in light of this, let me also ask you a question. Do you get angry when people mock Christianity? Do you get angry when people mock God? Do you get indignant and offended when people belittle God? If you saw someone who mocked Christianity, if you saw them in the illustration that Charles Spurgeon used, as someone standing on the train tracks with a train coming towards them at full speed, 
And they're mocking the train, they're laughing at the train, they're saying those on the train are stupid, they're saying the train doesn't exist. If you're on the train, does that make you angry? No, it breaks your heart. And you don't need to get offended on behalf of the train. You need to say to those people, please open your eyes. See, when we get angry at people who mock Christianity, who mock God, it doesn't reveal the strength and the sincerity of our faith necessarily. In some some cases, it can reveal the weakness of our faith. In some cases, it can reveal that we have forgotten that if it wasn't for the grace of God in our lives, we too would be out on those train tracks. J.D. Greer says it this way. He says, We who know the gospel cannot hear God's mocking and join in as his complete ally. After all, we are not the ones to bring God's wrath. In fact, we were the objects of that wrath and we know that if not for Christ, we would still be helpless gnats too. So while we can smile at the creative and even humorous ways that God brings about justice for the wicked, we must always remember that wickedness is not only out there, it's in our hearts as well. See, we shouldn't mock or belittle those who mock and belittle God. We should be filled with compassion for them. We should pray for them. We should seek to serve them. And we should seek to persuade them as well. We should also, though, rest in the knowledge that God will ultimately bring justice to his world. And though those who oppose him look like they're in charge, there's a day coming when God will bring his justice. And those who oppose him now will stand before him then. And this is what that story of Ehud reveals to us about God. And maybe this is shocking to you. Maybe this is surprising to you. Perhaps you've never thought about the fact that God could laugh. Well, the truth is, that's not even the most shocking thing about this story. There is something we should be far, far more shocked by in this story. And it is the unending, never stopping, never giving up love of God. See, God had every reason to give up on Israel. They repeatedly turned from him and worshipped false gods, but he never did. God had no reason to rescue them again and again and again, but he did. God never gave up on his people. And this is by far the most astonishing, shocking thing about this story. The faithfulness of God to a faithless people. And it's amazing to me that when God does rescue his people, he doesn't use someone who has their act together. He uses methods and people that we would never expect. He uses Ehud, a left-handed saviour. And this will become a pattern in the book of Judges. God will use people and methods that we would never expect him to use. And of course the point is, it's to prepare us for and to point us to God's ultimate act of salvation. You see, when God saved the world through his son Jesus, he did it in a way that we would never expect. And he did it through someone who we didn't see coming. You see, you would have looked at Jesus in that day and you would not have thought, there's the saviour of the world. And this is what we're told in God's word. In Isaiah 53, we're told about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. You would not have looked at Jesus and thought, there's the saviour of the world. You would not have looked at Jesus dying upon the cross and thought, there is where God is saving the world. And yet that's exactly what he was doing. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. See, God is telling us through the story of Ehud and Eglon that his salvation will not come in an obvious way, a Hollywood way, if you will. It will come from an outsider born in a manger. It will come through what looks like weakness. It will come through what looks like defeat. And if you look for God among the powerful, the strong, the popular, the influential, the socially acceptable, you might just miss him. But if you look for God, if you humble yourself before God's left-handed deliverer, the Lord Jesus, you will find him. And God's left-handed saviour, his son, Jesus Christ, came for left-handed people like us. All we have to offer God is our weakness and our need. And when we humble ourselves before him, he gives us more than we deserve, everything we need. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word to us. We're so thankful for the profound truths that you teach us about ourselves and about you, even in stories like that of Ehud, the left-handed assassin. Lord, we open ourselves up to be used by you in this world for your glory and we humble ourselves before you, Lord Jesus, our left-handed saviour. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to close the service by singing a beautiful, a joyful song of what Jesus has done for us through God's love. Let's stand and sing.